Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that it's a great day to be alive, but you knew that too. Why? Because you are a self-aware person who realizes that even in quarantine, there is goodness to be mined out of every day. I hope to be a part of that goodness today, and I believe I will be, because I have a great conversation for you with a gentleman named Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Did you know that God wants you to prosper, to be rich even? It's true. That's what Rabbi Daniel Lappin says. He even wrote a book about it called Thou Shall Prosper. And I'm going to tell you more about him and that book after I tell you that this episode is brought to you by bookshop.org. Bookshop.org is a consortium of independent booksellers who have put together a really good and comprehensive online bookstore that is certainly competitive to those other big online bookstores. It's got everything you need, and you can support crazy money and independent booksellers by going to bookshop.org by clicking on the link in the show notes. All right, let's talk about Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Rabbi Lappin believes that money is the reward we get when we serve another one of God's children. Therefore, doing business is doing God's work. He's very passionate about this. He speaks about it. He writes about it. He's got videos online about it. In his videos, courses, and books, Thou Shall Prosper and Business Secrets from the Bible, Rabbi Lappin leverages scripture to weave a passionate and, I believe, refreshing defense of capitalism. In short, he says, God wants man and woman to be together, to serve one another, and to prosper as a result. We dig into all sorts of topics. In addition to capitalism, Rabbi Lappin and I discuss evangelicalism, the prosperity gospel, which you'll hear that he completely disavows, the respective financial attitudes of Protestants versus Catholics, and yes, why Jews are disproportionately good with money. Now, here's where I have to offer you my full disclosure. I may be a biased participant in this conversation because the two best financial days of my life were the day I met my friend, the late Dave Goldberg, and the day I met Mark Zuckerberg. You know who he is, right? Suffice to say that I've benefited tremendously from my association with the tribe, even if I once made a tragic sartorial decision at a bat mitzvah. Listen for details. It mortifies me to this day. Before we jump in, I have to say that as a non-religious person, I don't necessarily share 100% of Rabbi Lappin's point of view. But this show isn't about putting on only people I agree with or people whose political affiliation fits mine. It's about exploring ideas that may fit with our view of the world or, or may not. And I do find an awful lot of Rabbi Lappin's message highly compelling. Whether or not there's a God, and you know, hopefully we'll find out when we die, isn't the point. What I do believe with great conviction is that we are put here on this earth to serve one another. And that there are a lot of different ways to do that. While you can serve others without making a profit, the existence of a profit doesn't present evidence of dishonesty or chicanery. And I think that far too many people believe that today without even thinking about it. So I was very happy to learn of Rabbi Lappin and read his book, Thou Shall Prosper. I want to give a special thanks to listener Amanda Tall for bringing Rabbi Lappin's work to my attention. I get a lot of recommendations for potential guests, not all of which are a tremendous fit, but I appreciate all of them. In this case, it was a total home run. So thank you, Amanda. I hope you and your family enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So ladies and gentlemen, if you have an idea for a potential guest or just want to say hi, please email me at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com, crazymoneypodcast.com. Make sure you include the podcast. I read every email and I appreciate them, as I just said. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy my conversation with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. My having a bundle of currency in my pocket means that I have pleased another human being. As long as I didn't use governmental force to coerce you into giving it to me, and I didn't use a gun, and I didn't hold up a little old lady and take her pocketbook or take it from a convenience store, if I didn't do any of those things and I didn't defraud anybody, then the only way I have that money in my pocket is I have pleased another child of God. It might be my customer. It might be a client. It might be a relative. I don't know. But whoever it is, I've added to the sum stock of goodness and happiness in the world to which my money testifies. That's how I got it. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you very much indeed. I've been looking forward. As have I. So you've been described as America's rabbi. What does that mean? 
And it means absolutely nothing. It is an <laughs> utterly empty marketing ploy, and I think we should dispense with it. Look, I think Moses might have been the last time that all Jews agreed on a leader. But since that time, if you gathered all several million American Jews into one huge stadium, I guarantee you that if you gave them 30 days to find something we all agreed on about the only thing we'd come up with is that Hitler was a very bad man. <laughs> I will be making the jokes today, Rabbi. So oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Do you think it has something to do with the fact that evangelical Christians find you to be a very interesting and agreeable person? Well, if they do, that would be a refreshing first time for me. I think I love them. Uh, to be honest, I am of the opinion that biblical faith is what built Western civilization. It's not just the cathedrals of Europe, but it's the economic system itself. And it lies at the heart of why four and a half thousand Africans drowned in the Mediterranean in 2017 trying to get to Europe, but not a single European drowned in the Mediterranean trying to swim to Africa. And so evangelicals as the, the modern day heirs of what built the United States of America, I think they also stand for a, a tradition and a set of values that probably is the only shot at preserving the Republic beyond a very typical, in terms of world history, you know, 300 years for one Republican, considering that we've been going since 1789 with one constitution, we're kind of running out of time unless unless through the biblical uh, value system of 60 million American evangelicals, uh, the same kind of durability that somehow was built into Israel. And, you know, there they are going strong with a gross domestic output in the Middle East, equivalent to the four contiguous nations with 20 times their population. It's a pretty good record. Mm. And so my love affair with evangelicals is based on their commitment to a set of biblical values, which my people gave to the world. <laughs> and <laughs> which, Thank um, you. Thank you very much for your contributions. And <laughs> which I think will make, at least contribute to America being a viable home uh, for my children in the future. You don't often hear religious figures speaking about the power of commerce and the power of money. In fact, many people believe the world is divided into the sacred and the profane and that money belongs solely in the latter category. But you say unequivocally that money is holy. What do you mean by that? I knew this was going to be fun, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you certainly prepare for your interviews. I'll tell you that. And, uh, and that, as you probably know, is not all that common, really. That is my duty to you and my guests. Well, I certainly appreciate it and, and value it. So, yes, the core of the approach is essentially unity. It's the unification of an entire worldview. And so you might say, for instance, that the comprehensive necessity of being able to wrap up in one's approach to oneself and to raising one's children and perhaps even to public policy apropos of strange times is the necessity to combine compassion with strength. And so raising children with only compassion means you're going to raise monstrous brats. <laughs> yes. And raising children with only discipline means a tyrannical household that's no fun for anybody. And so it's combining those two, which is essentially what we see as, as God's unity as well. So, you know, when it comes to things like money, we absolutely do not see, and I, and I think it's a dreadful error and one that handicaps the revenue model of many, many, many individuals around the world is this idea that somehow God is interested in all those, wee, all those heavenly things up there and how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And by the way, I mean, I couldn't be less interested in theology because theology is what people think about God. It's just guess and speculation. I'm interested in Bible, which is what God thinks about human beings. Now, that's, I think that's worth studying, but not theology. And so, um, a key part of this is that money and sex, if you'll pardon me, I mean, because I think that 
it suffers from the same kind of problem, which people assume, well, you know, that's obviously not holy. How mm. can anything that provides pleasure be holy? And money, I mean, everybody knows money is just the result of greed. And so how can that be holy? And I think probably the success of my books and, and my message is due in no way to me personally, but in every way due to the intuitive and transcendent truth of this idea that making money is part of God's plan for human economic interaction, as opposed to some kind of dreadful thing that when God's attention was distracted by some trouble spot in the Balkans, you know, he looked back and he said, oh my me, look what they've done. They've introduced money and commerce. So where did we go wrong then? When did we start thinking about money as being evil? Was that from the beginning? I'm not that much of a, of a historian. I think it's a very natural thing. You know, if one would postulate placing a little boy and a little girl on an isolated desert island, and we set in place uh, clandestine surveillance equipment and sort of watch them over the years, is it possible that they'll come up with some kind of a superstitious deity? You know, more than likely. And, and is it possible that he'll impose certain uh, restrictions on their appetites and yearnings? It, possibly too. I don't know when this happened, but it, it may be very, very deeply rooted. What I do know is that so many of us are profoundly impacted by this idea that making money is intrinsically reprehensible. <laughs> and it's the, it's the province of greedy people. Uh, it's the province of people who don't really care about important things like society. And so as a result of that, what tends to happen is that you have situations like, uh, you know, my babysitter, who when my wife and I get home and I say to her, how much do I owe you? And she sort of looks downcast at the carpet and she starts moving her foot in patterns around the rug because she's embarrassed to tell me she wants money from me. Yes. And then she usually says something like, would $8 an hour be okay? And, you know, we've been gone for three hours. And so I, I said to her, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> and you know where I'm going with this, obviously. She didn't. And I said, I think $10 an hour would be better. And she didn't quite know where to go. And I said, look, you did such a great job. And we felt confident being out of the house and everyone went to bed nicely. And so we, we want to know we can call you again. And we want to make it worth your while so that next time we call you, you'll answer our phone call and come back again. So that's what I'd like to pay you. Is that okay with you? This is, you know, it's just a different way of looking at things. I was going to wait a second to get to this, but you bring up a very interesting point. In your book, I read a line that I found very thought-provoking, and it was this. Jews have never been handicapped on business by feelings of confusion about money. The conviction that business was honorable allowed them, spurred them on to succeed. So that conviction of them doing God's will through business actually helps them negotiate better. That's right. Very, very much so, because, uh, you know, Look, by the way, your book about the MBA, I hope it's doing great. And, and if I can ever help promote it, I think it's terrific. And You um, just did. You have just given me a well, quote. Good. Well, please use it to good effect because uh, all I was going to say is that every Econ 101 course has a different definition of money, but it's always something like, uh, you know, medium of exchange, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But through Jewish eyes... Uh, money is much more than that. It is essentially a beautiful little green certificate of good performance. My having a bundle of currency in my pocket means that I have pleased another human being, maybe more than one. As long as I didn't use governmental force to coerce you into giving it to me, and I didn't use a gun and I didn't hold up a little old lady and take her pocketbook or take it from a convenience store, if I didn't do any of those things and I didn't defraud anybody, then the only way I have that money in my pocket is I have pleased another child of God. It might be my customer. It might be a client. It might be a relative. I don't know. 
But whoever it is, I've added to the sum stock of goodness and happiness in the world to which my money testifies. That's how I got it. Conducting business is every bit as holy as raising children or growing crops or helping your neighbor in a time of trouble. Beautifully put. Absolutely. So as a matter of fact, something that, boy, there's so many questions I'd love to ask you because you seem to have, from what little I know of your career, you seem to have, for the moment at least, turned your back on corporate America and cutting-edge technology, and you're sort of exploring deep ideas. (laughs) Trying to, yes. That's what it looks like to me. And so I'd love to answer your question, and I'm going to take the chance of answering in a way I've, I don't think I've answered on previous interviews, or at least not lately. And that is by homing in on exactly this point. I don't think it is an accident that not only in the Lord's language in which the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but even in English, there is this idea of service being applied to both worship and customer, worship service and customer service. In the Bible and in the Hebrew, this is just kind of interesting. There are several places that are translated in the King James translation and most subsequent translations um, as work. For instance, uh, God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and uh, Ten Commandments, Fourth Commandment, Six Days Shalt Thou Work and and so on and so forth. And then there are a number of places where there's a word that's translated as serve. Let my people go, said Moses to Pharaoh, so that they may worship God in the desert. And then towards the end of the book of Joshua, for instance, Joshua says, you know what? You people are driving me nuts. You can do whatever (laughs) on earth you like. But as for me and my family, we shall worship the Lord. And so I've mentioned four biblical citations. Two are translated as work and two are translated as worship. And the fascinating thing is that in Hebrew, it's all the same word. Mm. And so all this does is uh, confirm exactly the way you phrase your question, which is that when we take care of customers, when we take care of the needs and the desires of God's other children through economic activity, we are serving him every bit as devotedly as we do in church on Sunday morning or in synagogue. And the big mistake is that people assume that since I pocket revenue as a result of one of those activities, namely the work, it somehow diminishes its purity and detracts from the spiritual significance of the action. And I explain at length in in lectures and in my writing uh, why that is a fallacy. It's simply not true. And so in exactly the same way, you have how many children? Three? Two. Two children. Uh, How old are they? Nine and ten. So I'm sure you don't have squabbling in your household, but we do. Never, never, never. And there comes a, a magic moment where you find they're no longer squabbling and they're constantly trying to help one another and do things for one another. And you're going to derive this incredible sense of satisfaction. And you're going to say to yourself, hey, in this, perhaps one of my most important jobs on this planet, I've actually done okay. Look at them. (laughs) Right. And that's kind of how our father in heaven views it when we take care of business, because we are taking care of customers and clients and employees and vendors and all these other children. Our money merely testifies to our effectiveness of doing that. Hey, everybody, it's Paul. I was just talking to Rabbi Lappin, but now I want to talk to you. Today's episode is brought to you by Bookshop.org. Yes, I mentioned that before. What is Bookshop.org? A consortium of independent booksellers who have come together to create an online bookstore that is as deep and wide as a river in South America. Oh, wait a minute. No, that's somebody else. It's a competitor to Amazon is what it is. And it allows you to get your books while supporting independent booksellers all over the country. I've created a shop on bookshop.org that contains all the works of all the authors that I've interviewed so far on Crazy Money. So in addition to Rabbi Lappin's excellent book, Thou Shall Prosper, you can pick up Lori Gottlieb's book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is an outstanding read. Maybe Bill Browder's Red Notice, A True Story of High Finance Murder and One Man's Fight for Justice. He was an early interviewer and And that book is maybe 
the best book I've read in the past three years. Oh, another great one is James Lowry's Change Agent, which is his memoir about being a pioneer in the minority business community. Whichever one you're interested in, go check it out. You can click on the link in the show notes or type in bookshop.org slash lists slash crazy money. Yeah, that's a little cumbersome. Maybe they'll work on it. Bookshop.org. So are there other faith traditions that equivocate on this or that have teachings that pull them away from a full commitment to business as being honorable? I'm not I, asking you to throw any religions under the bus here. I'm just sort of, <laughs> <laughs> how do you feel about uh, Buddhists, Rabbi? <laughs> well, I, I mean, look, I don't mind. I don't mind telling you that I, I think it would be just fine for people to apply the same standards to business as they do to purchases of uh, tech equipment or cars or or anything else that plays an important role in your life. You basically try and find the one that'll satisfy your needs most effectively. Look, I mean, I do think it's not an accident that, you know, bathrooms and banks in Beijing and Bombay and uh, Bangkok look exactly now like bathrooms and banks in Boston and Birmingham. It didn't go the other way around. Basically, the other cultures of the world followed Christian civilization, and they stopped using a hole in the ground, and they started using waterborne sewage systems, which came was one of the blessings of Western civilization. The idea of you know, keeping your, your money in the form of gold in your mattress as opposed to banks, again, this came from Western civilization. In fact, there is no such thing as a capital market ever having arisen indigenously in a non-Christian country. Now, today we have stock markets in, you know, in Accra and in Bangladesh, but that's not where they began. Mm. And so I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but I do think that the Judeo-Christian biblical tradition has been much more successful in building a society and a culture to which people vote with their feet by trying to come to such countries. The, the direction of immigrant travel is almost invariably, uh, certainly if you look at the MENA countries, uh, Middle East, North African countries, the travel is entirely from Islam to Christianity in terms of cultural choice and economic preference. Now, of course, people say, well, that's just because those are richer countries. Well, obviously, the whole question is why? What made those countries more financially successful, particularly at a time when today capital knows no boundaries and information knows no boundaries? So it's very difficult. And many people, Jared Diamond and, and Samuelson and, and all the other people, Neil Ferguson, they've written terrific books all trying to explain this enormous enigma of the West and the rest. And the bottom line is that Nobody really likes the answer, which is <laughs> it's, it's a Bible culture. Right. Uh, and again, I, I explain that at great length. But bottom line is I actually don't know anything at all about the theology of other faiths. I can't really answer uh, how other faiths believe in that. But I would say based on the evidence of cultural economic success, I would say that uh, Judeo-Christian Bible-based is quite different. And it will also seem as if there are even important differences, which I can identify uh, at some time in Protestantism and Catholicism. Because if you think about uh, Belgium and Holland, these are two countries with the same racial stock and the same meteorology and the same natural resources or lack thereof. And Belgium is a basket case. They're basically the bureaucrats of, of the European market. And Holland is a powerhouse. Mm. Or North Island and South Island, you know, where South Island is beautiful place. By the way, if you if you haven't visited, excellent run, golf. Don't walk. Oh, I've been, I've been. Yeah, it's it's great, you know. But it's basically, uh, you know, guys sitting around drinking Guinness. I mean, there's not a lot, of, a whole lot going on there. But in Northern Ireland, they have shipyards. That's where the Titanic was built. Not sort of a great mark of success. But the difference <laughs> is part. Protestantism and Catholicism, or North Belgium and Holland, Protestantism and Catholicism, uh, North Italy and South Italy, South Italy, again, you know, all the way down to uh, uh, Sicily, you're talking about peasants sitting on the hillside, eating olives and drinking vino. There's not a whole lot going on there. And God bless them. I love going to Italy. It's beautiful. But go to North Italy, 
and they build Hermes scarves and Ferraris and Lamborghinis, and the whole fashion industry is up there. And again, northern Italy, closer to Protestant Europe, South Italy, very heavily Catholic from Rome southwards, and it seems to have an enormous impact on economic productivity. So answer to a straightforward question, and even then we haven't really finished it, but it's probably enough. Well, I'm interested. I was raised Catholic, and I would say that my conflicted relationship with money is not entirely unrelated to oh, being raised, oh, being so raised you Catholic. Actually, you feel that. I think that, you know, I remember saying to my mother driving around, my father always had a job. We were always stable, but there were six kids and large extended family. And so there was sort of always more desires, at least among the children, than there were resources from the parents. And I interviewed my father and he said, I just didn't think we needed it. So I didn't buy it, you know, and he's very logical, good man. But I remember saying to my mom, I said, by the way, is that podcast with your dad up on your site? I can send you a link to it. It's an earlier episode that's on all whatever podcast app. Would you, you would you do that, please? Absolutely. I really would be interested. Absolutely. Driving around with my mom around suburban Atlanta, where I grew up and where I live again, after many years traveling the earth looking for affluence and technology stock options, I saw a car and I said, what kind of car is that? And she said, that's a Mercedes. And I said, I like that car. She said, they're very expensive. I said, well, how do you make a lot of money? She said, well, you need to get a high paying job like being a lawyer. And I said, I want to be a lawyer because I want to have a Mercedes. And then she sort of said, well, how would you feel about driving a Mercedes when there's so many hungry people in the world? And from there, I'm screwed. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> and that's very different than the prosperity gospel and that a lot of the messaging that you espouse. And so I find oh, that, me, I find that just, very if interesting. If you don't mind, let me just interrupt by distancing myself dramatically from prosperity gospel. Okay. And may I take 30 seconds on the distinction? By all means. Prosperity gospel, and I'm no expert on that either, but basically it's the religious version of the attraction principle. You remember the that book of a number of years ago, pray for what you want badly enough and visualize it and put up pictures in your mind and on your wall and it'll come to you. Right. It's difficult for, a, for any semi-sophisticated human being to view that as, as anything beyond unadulterated bilge water. It makes absolutely no sense, you know, unless, unless you postulate that when you ask God for a Ferrari, he did hear you and he did answer you and he said no. Right. But that's not the, the biblical approach at all. The Jewish approach is quite different, and, and that is not please God, could you send me $300 so I can make my payment on the car this month? It's please God, show me which of your children might need my services so I can take care of their needs. The focus and the obsession is entirely on satisfying the needs of other people, pleasing other people. And when you think about it, that is the connection between sex and money. They're connected in hugely important and powerful ways. But one of the most important is that in both of them, the ultimate thrill comes from pleasing and pleasuring somebody else. Yeah. That's how we view business. It's not what I want. What I want will come automatically. I don't think for a moment, I don't think about revenue. I focus only on providing. So let me ask a related question. On the one hand, you believe that living a life of character is a key element in building a life of affluence. On the other hand, do you believe that God is an interventionist God who determines who will be rich and who will be poor? <laughs> Gosh, you're determined to drag me kicking and screaming into <laughs> theology. I can see it. <laughs> but I'm going to answer. I'm not um, sure where the line of theology starts and ends, but by no means do I mean to catch you contradicting yourself or tripping no, you up. I, I assume you're far better at this than I am. No, not at so. all. You're, it's a pleasure talking with you, and I don't feel uh, waylaid or trapped in any way whatsoever, <laughs> so don't worry about it. But no, let me answer. It's obviously a, a, an important question. Okay. Somebody goes up to the 20th floor of a building, opens the window, climbs out, and jumps. And he has a very thrilling ride of about six seconds, which <laughs> is, is, it could even be enjoyed if one didn't have to think about the future. <laughs> yeah. And the truth is that the fall doesn't kill him. It's only the rather sudden stop at the end. 
And so he shows up at the pearly gates and the good Lord says to him, you know, what the heaven did you do that for? And he says, well, I've always been a good person throughout my life. I'm in church every Sunday and I study the Bible and I listen to the pastor and I put money in the collection plate and I take care of widows and orphans and I'm a good husband and a good father. How could you let me do that? How did I, I thought you'd catch me? And God's answer is, hey, I gave you a system of science. I told you that you live in a unified world. Monotheism and scientific development have always gone together. It is hard to find any culture that has developed scientifically that isn't a culture that isn't monotheistic. Now, again, there are lots of instances where you can see that, that it's the whole idea of that unity. You should have studied the physics, and then you would have known not to do that. This is my parable, if you like, for the interventionist God. How's about the poor person? You know, after a, a difficult life dealing with poverty, uh, he finally comes before the good Lord and uh, and Lord says, uh, you know, how, how are you doing? He says, well, I'll tell you the honest truth. It's, it's kind of a relief to be here because things are, were really rough for the last 40 or 50 years. What do you mean? He says, I had to fight and struggle for every penny and I, I constantly had to worry. And God says, yeah, but whose fault was that? And he says, what do you mean? He says, well, I gave you a system. I told you what you have to do if you want money. You see, I don't really care if you have money or not. That, as God, that's not my main concern. My main concern is that you should connect with other people. My biggest no-no is for people to be alone and isolated. Mm. I told you that. I started off my Bible. Eight times I told you things were good. Everything was good. When's the very first time I used the phrase, not good? Not good for man to be alone. Mm. Now, you were a dummy. You thought that meant and applied uniquely to Adam's matrimonial prospects. It didn't. It was a general statement for all of humanity at all time. I detest people being lonely and isolated. And I'm a good God. So I even incentivized it. I made it easy. And I connected one of your deepest desires, namely money, with connecting with other people. And that's why one of the most reliable correlations with wealth creation is, in fact, connection. And so, yeah, the system is set up. God wants people not to be alone. He wants us to connect with one another. He incentivized us with two great things, sex and money. And neither of them can you succeed in alone. You say that faith is the fuel that drives commerce. What does that mean exactly? Well, let's imagine that I am the bearer of bad tidings. And the sad information I have, which I hope not to have to tell you until we'd finished our interview, is that one hour after the end of our interview, the world is coming to an end. Mm. I would believe it now more than I would have eight weeks ago. <laughs> yes, I can understand. But in this case, it's actually a giant meteorite. Okay. And, you know, it, you know, look at it this way. It's, it's been a pretty good ride. And it's not, you know, it's not just the Baptists it's, or the Catholics. It's the Jews as well. Everybody's going. And as soon as we finish this interview, we'll go out and discover that everyone else actually knows that information already. What has happened to your net worth? It's become irrelevant. It's like zero. Yes. Yeah. If you try and monetize any of your assets, if you try and liquidate, nothing, nothing you own is of any value anymore. You've literally had your fortune wiped out. How? By you and everyone else around us believing that there is no tomorrow. Now, the good news is I was lying. See? <laughs> oh, wow. I just sold everything. You didn't see me, but I just sold everything. A man <laughs> of the cloth shouldn't lie, right? But there you go. I just did. And the good news is that everything is fine. Oh, wow. And that's why the phrase, in God we trust, is not placed on the walls of churches where you'd expect to find it. It's placed on the currency. Because without faith in tomorrow, and by the way, that's the definition of a recession is lack of belief in tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Right. And the surest way to correct a recession is if everybody starts believing 
hey, you know what? Everything's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that is a little bit of why and how faith is connected with commerce. It's funny. I was on a walk with my nine-year-old daughter yesterday, and my son's been watching a lot of World War II videos to fill the days. At least I can rationalize by saying it's educational. And she said, well, why did- may I, may, I give you, may I give you an unsolicited tip? Absolutely. And I know nothing is as unwelcome as unsolicited Nonsense. advice. But uh, they're just the right age. You should set them up with a World War II movie, or for that matter, some of the older John Wayne movies. He made 80 cowboy movies. Mm -hmm. And every one of them is a demonstration of manliness and honor. Every one. We watched Patton the other day. Right. A perfect one. There's also a lot of um, movies like The Guns of Navarone. Oh, yeah. Some of the older World War II movies. But what I, I would recommend is something I've done, and that is prepare in advance six or seven questions having to do with values in mm. the movie. Mm. And then when the movie's done, you know, take a walk with him or sit down somewhere or have an ice cream or whatever and say, I watched that movie as well. And, you know, here's one of the questions I had, and I'm really baffled by this. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not quizzing you. I'm enlisting your opinion, what you learned from this. Some of the most fabulous conversations I had with our son was after these movies in consequence to a list of questions I had prepared on uh, one of my uh, three-by-five cards I used for it. That's a great idea. And, in fact, I just think maybe being... 10% more purposeful can actually turn, you know, a 90 minutes of killing time into, mm -hmm. you know, a big step in a relationship. Yeah. And that's similar to what happened yesterday when I was walking with my daughter. She said, well, why did Japan invade China? And we got into a conversation around resources and the resources that Japan needed. And she said, well, instead of invading, why didn't they just trade? And I was like, oh my goodness, my, my heart is full <laughs> with that question of yours. Isn't that beautiful? And I said, and I was like, yeah. And I was like, you know, so I said, well, that's a, that is one of the best questions you've ever asked me. What's required to engage in trade? What do people need in between each other to engage in trade? And I was trying to get to trust, you know? And so that's where that conversation began. And one of the reasons I may have come up with that thought was because in your book, you talked about the origins of lending for ancient Jewish civilizations being a trust that existed among Jews that didn't exist among other distantly related entities, whether they be municipalities, nation states, whatever. Yeah, um, exactly. Where did that come from and how has that made such a big difference in Jewish thinking for all these years? Well, the trust and closeness comes not from shared facts, but from shared beliefs. And so if you and I both know the speed of the internet, that's not really going to do a whole lot for us. But if, let us say, we both think that some of the countryside outside Atlanta is some of the most beautiful parts of America, now we're talking beliefs, not facts. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, we actually have a relationship. Right. So that's the important thing. Uh, beliefs build bonds, not facts. And uh, one of the things that Jews are connected with one another by is essentially uh, a system of beliefs. By the way, that's that's not true for all Jews, as, as I hinted at earlier. Uh, there are schisms, huge schisms within what passes for the Jewish community. There isn't even such a thing as the Jewish community. But at least in Judaism, it is a shared belief system which brings about closeness and trust. What stage in your life did you start thinking about money through the lens of religion or philosophy? I wish I could tell you uh, in the cradle. I wish it would have been true, but it wasn't. I began speaking for Christian audiences. It was my first time speaking to non-Jewish audiences was in, uh, in the very early 90s which is, you know, quite a while ago. And I spoke at many, many Christian events, Christian colleges, Christian churches, Christian groups, and people got to know me. And more importantly, they got to, to trust me. And they realized that I didn't operate on an anti-Semitic hair trigger. 
Um, <laughs> you, you know, not everything that has happened in Jewish history is anti-Semitic. Not everything. Yes. I once wore jeans to a bat mitzvah. That's my biggest crime against the, the good people. You probably may have got in for a bout of anti-Catholicism over there, I suspect. <laughs> it was, believe me, it's, I, I don't go a day without thinking about it. And it's been years now. Yes. <laughs> Can you offer me absolution for that? I don't know if it works like that in Judaism, but in Catholicism, um, I could get you know, for a price. <laughs> we call those uh, indulgences. For, yes, that's in right. Term. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, they, they, you know, they got some things right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> but what happened was people felt comfortable asking me the problematic question which is why are Jews so disproportionately good with money? And they knew that I wasn't going to explode into an indignant fit of anti-Semitic fury. My first thought was, what a good question. Mm. My second thought was, hey, there are poor Jews, but the way the question is phrased is absolutely true. We are disproportionately good with money. And it's not just now in America. It's even in the 19th century when Mark Twain wrote about it and commented on Jews and money. And it's not only America, it's Europe. And you can go back to Max Weber and many of the other scholars in economics uh, who also asked this question. So uh, that was really the first time I began to seriously explore this. And I decided to be very open about it and even acknowledge the possibility that the reason that Jews do well with money is the same reason that the old Oxford English Dictionary lists the word Jew as a verb, as in to Jew somebody. Mm. Maybe Jews are just good at ripping people off. And that's, you know, I, I guess... You know, honesty isn't the best policy, really. Total moral flexibility is the best policy, as long as you're operating in the short term. If you're operating in the long term, that's a totally different thing, because reputation counts, and we see the value of a brand, uh, obviously. So, I mean, you know, when Chrysler bought a Jeep for, I think, uh, $2 billion, I believe, all they got was the name and a sort of semi-rundown, worthless plant in Toronto. But brands really matter. And so reputation counts and over the long term. And so I really looked at that possibility. And I even interviewed large numbers of Christians who had done business with Jews over the years. Are there scoundrels in the Jewish basket? Absolutely. Uh, I know one of your podcasts interviews the victim of one. Mm. Uh, so, you know, of, of course there are but no more than in any other group. right? And so that didn't explain it. And so it was at that point that I began to embark on a serious analysis on this subject, which I'd never thought about before, which is why are Jews good with money? I mean, is it, you know, which are now fully discredited, stupid racial theory that Jews have a money gene in their sperm that gets passed <laughs> down to their kids? <laughs> You know, so uh, I, I had to discredit and debunk many of the common explanations. I found four explanations that I methodically debunked. And when I had done that, I was left with the need of now researching what the real explanation is. And that was when I began to probe into many, many, many volumes. I know the podcast is, uh, is audio, but if I, if I could show you some of the large books in the shelf behind me, uh, you'll see that I had my work cut out for me. Yeah. And that resulted in my first book, Thou Shall Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money. And that book got severely edited by the publisher saying they don't want it to be too religious. So they don't want too much in the way of biblical references or anything. And so, you know, obviously I complied and the book, you know, sold and sells brilliantly. But they came back to me a few years later and they said, hey, you remember all that stuff we cut out? <laughs> and I said, yeah, you won't be interested in this. A lot of it is biblical stuff. They said, no, 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 we're, we're okay with that now. 
So we oh, uh, published a new book called uh, Business Secrets from the Bible, 40 Successful Success Strategies uh, for Financial Abundance, Business Secrets from the Bible, which, by the way, just this week got published in Korea. The secret emerged very clearly from all that research, which is that ancient Jewish wisdom, looking at the Bible through that lens of ancient Jewish wisdom, is what provided an understanding in the same way that most people learn that you don't step out of windows on the 20th floor, right. most Jews begin to understand that there's a set of biblical principles that are crucial to developing wealth. And one of them right off the bat is something we opened our conversation with today, which is understanding that nobody but nobody can really succeed at any activity that deep down he considers to be morally reprehensible. But even more than that, it seems to me, and I don't know that much about what you were doing prior to writing the first book you mentioned, but I know you were a rabbi in a congregation in Los Angeles and you had worked, That's in, correct, and yes. you'd worked in financial services. But correct. it was at that point where you started to put together this religious interpretation of wealth and affluence that you answered the question for yourself, how do I serve most of God's children in the most valuable way? And that is where your affluence and notoriety and celebrity came from, is that when right. you answered that question for yourself, like, oh, is that your mission now? Is that is that the definition of a mission when we find that part of ourselves that that yeah. is contributing the most back to all of our fellow human beings? Not, please don't say back. Because that means yes. while you were making money in the first place, you were stealing it. I didn't. I, no, I, I, and I re recognize that distinction from the book. But I, what I mean is that, and I think that my journey as far as what I'm trying to do here is like, the more I try to scale this up, the more I try to scale up being a comedian, the more I try to have people interested in what I do and have to say, the more I have to answer the question, well, what need do they have that I can help them with? That's right. Because until I can answer that question, I am just a generically funny-ish guy. But if I can turn that into a product that has value to them and a product without which they don't live as well, then that's what they're going to pay for. And that's what they'll come back for. And that's what they will share with all their friends, which is exactly the way I heard about you. Oh, really? Yes. One of my listeners said, do you know of Rabbi Daniel Appen? And I said, I had not heard of him. And as I started to read, I'm like, oh, I want to talk to this guy. And you're more than funny-ish, by the way. I, I have seen some of your comedy well, videos. Well, thank you. And, thank and you. I, look, again, in Jewish thinking, somebody who makes other people laugh has a special little corner of heaven set aside for him because laughter is one of the ways we're distinguished from the animal kingdom. Mm. No animals laugh. Now, I don't mean to offend all the millions of pet-owning listeners you have, so <laughs> I apologize to all of you folks. My wife, number one, so... Right. Uh, but unfortunately, your dog or your goldfish are not smiling or laughing. They really aren't. They may be content. They may be even happy in some form or another, but they're not laughing. Laughing is unique to human beings. And so helping humans laugh is hugely valuable, particularly if it can be done without falling back on sex, toilets, and God. Those, <laughs> the, those, those are three, ar three areas of, of humor, which we do find funny precisely because we know that we're not animals. Because if we were, there'd be nothing funny about toilet functions. It's only that we're slightly awkward about activities that we seem to share with animals, namely toilet sex, and then, of course, uh, God is funny because we're just, you know, people are, again, uncomfortable about it. Yes. But do you find, are you more in touch with your mission today or has it become more clear to you than before you had found this insight into money and religion? I think I was somewhat fortunate. It's certainly more so than, than somewhat earlier. But when I was serving my congregation in California, although I wasn't as focused and right now, by the way, I'm very much focused. My new book that I'm working on is the connection between money and sex. Oh, interesting. We'll have to have um, you back on when that comes out. I'd love to talk about that with you. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's really important because uh, you would have thought that after 60 years of gender egalitarianism, you would have thought that by now, 
at least half the marriages we know of would have come about not because a man went down on one knee and held out a ring to a girl, but because a girl went down on one knee, held out a gold Rolex watch mm. to a guy mm -hmm. and said, make me the happiest girl in the, in the world by marrying me. But that doesn't happen. And you'd also have thought that girls would be delighted if a guy holds out a $6 ring he got at the flea market for an engagement. And she'd say, I'm, I'm so proud to get married to a man who's so frugal. <laughs> that's that's not what girls do. I think my mom might have said that. Well, maybe later, but at the time she was happy to get a ring that your dad worked. Correct, with. correct. So yeah, the, the sex and money is very close, and so I'm I'm very very involved with that right now. To the extent that uh, my mission um, was always making the secrets of ancient Jewish wisdom accessible to people, I did that for my congregation. And again, the focus is on, you know, what I call my five Fs. Faith is obviously one of them, but so is family, friendship, finance, and fitness. Mm. These are all areas where I'm just not interested in how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but I sure want to know how the best way is to operate my sexual relationships. I surely want to know the best way to operate my friendships and my financial relationships. Those are things that really, really matter. Without question. And if there's one misconception about business and money that frustrates you the most, what is that? It's particularly when business professionals themselves seem to have no understanding whatsoever of the inherent dignity and morality of the process of business. I bristle uncontrollably and often all too visibly um, <laughs> when an arrogant, self-made successful man piously intones the phrase, well, after having done so well, I've decided it's time for me to start giving back. And that just sets me on a slow burn, precisely because if giving money back, if giving money to charity is giving back, then it's pretty clear what you think you were doing to society while you were making the money in the first place. So that is certainly, that, that giving back notion bothers me. It bothers me very much when commencement speakers talk to a, a class of college leavers and tell them things like two of the things that, that drive me so upset. It's probably why I don't get invited anymore to be a commencement <laughs> day speaker. Because on two occasions that I remember clearly, I was the speaker after somebody who got up oh, and spoke about the wonders of public service and encouraging the graduating class to go into what I, the phrase I put quotes around public service. And I, I got up and I said, look, I, I'm going to toss out my prepared remarks because I think as a service to the graduating class, I have to disagree with the previous speaker and not by way of a debate or, or hurling around words as projectiles. It's just a civil disagreement. And I would like the uh, graduating class in its own time to make up its own mind between my preceding speaker and myself. And my view is that, number one, any activity that needs a euphemism is not a beautiful and clean activity. <laughs> right. You know, there's a reason that Ralph Crandon in The Honeymoon has had a friend who was a sanitation engineer, because that sounds better than saying I work in the sewers. Mm -hmm. And so public service, all that really means is you want to go and work for government. And the reason I disagree with that advice is because if you go to work for government, all that means is another 10 fingers in my wallet. Because you're going to have to be paid. And the only way to do that is to more extricate yeah. more money from me by newly confiscatory rates of taxation. The last thing I want to see is you people all going into government. I'll tell you what I'd love you all to do. I'd love you all to go into business and promise yourselves you'll all make a million dollars before you're 30. That would be the most selfless and kind and loving thing you could do. Because the absolute only way you'll be able to make a million dollars 
is if you provide me with one and a half million dollars worth of goods and services, the only reason you get me to reach into my pocket and buy your app or buy your product or buy your services is because those things you're giving me are worth more than the money I'm giving you. You improve my life. There's a reason why today's luxuries become tomorrow's necessities. The way that ordinary people like us live now, the most affluent aristocrats of our great-grandparents' era didn't live as well. How'd the students react? A lot of people flocked. Faculty reacted very, very badly. (laughs) What a shock. Um, What a shock. uh, Students flocked around me afterwards. They'd never heard such a thing. I'm not surprised. Those are the things that I think are horrible misconceptions. Going to make a million dollars, that's not greedy. You're providing so much more value to everyone else around you. And I speak about charity. I I sometimes say to people, why do you want to be wealthy? And especially if, uh, well, I, I won't specify an audience, but what people very often say is, well, because I'd like to be able to do good for so many other people. I'd like to be able to bless other people with with gifts. Whether you give charity or not, that's a totally separate discussion, but that's not a reason to Mm. make money. The reason to make money is the only way you can do it is by serving God's other children. I lived in a neighborhood in San Francisco for a couple of years called Coal Valley. And in that neighborhood was a outstanding cheese shop, a coffee joint that was unparalleled, where they took great care and precision with your beverage one of the best restaurants on the West Coast, a great dry cleaner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a market with just the All best All these meats. small businesses All that these, enhanced your life. That, and I'm like, I live in the best neighborhood because of the people who have put their capital at risk to create opportunities for me to enjoy life more. I don't know why, but in the, it was maybe the first time in my life I really, that sunk in for me. I could not agree more. You put your finger on it precisely. That's exactly right. I want, there's a Korean-American couple that run a dry clean around here. Now, the Hertz Rent-A-Car Corporation is running out of cash, right? We're, we're barely two months into this corona crisis, and I hope, I hope you didn't mean this recording to be evergreen. I've just gone and dated us. <laughs> no, it's going to, it's fine. This is a, t- a time okay, and good, place. But, and my uh, last question will, is, relates to that, so please go ahead. Yeah, no, just, I'm just saying that Hertz is running out of cash. How about my little dry cleaner store? They're terrific. If I bring in something that needs a button, I don't even know a, a button is dangling. They, they fix it. They're terrific. I'm finding myself taking stuff in there now that I don't even need cleaned because I just want to help them survive. I just want them to be there. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. Well, along those lines, you know, plagues played an important role in the liberation of the Jewish people from Egypt. Yes. What significance do you see in what we're dealing with right now with coronavirus? What can we all take away from this? That you are watching the most dastardly and incredibly stupid overreaction Mm. that we've ever witnessed. The idea that we've sold out to experts. And something that I've, I've tried to, to help people understand is that whether I need antibiotics for a, for a fever I've developed or whether I need surgery for a hernia or whatever, all of those things I will speak to a doctor, I might speak to several doctors, and then I'll make a decision. But if during that discussion, one of the doctors also says, by the way, you know, while we're talking about your, um, your hernia, uh, how'd it be if I also book you in to do a, um, a facelift? And I say, excuse me? He says, yes. Uh, you know, you'd make more money if you looked younger. And I think we can knock 20 years off your age if we do. A fa-. At that point, he's moved outside the area of medicine. Mm. There are all kinds of other questions, my value system, my finances, my discretionary uh, income, all, all of these questions have nothing to do with medicine. My point is that public policy, excuse me, public health is not a medical question. Public health takes into account economics as well, because people die from depression, people die from anxiety, uh, men 
suffer dreadfully from unemployment, sexually. Sexual dysfunction goes almost hand in hand with unemployment, almost always. These are huge problems. And so the idea that specialist doctors, and I understand that to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And to a doctor, I understand that a doctor says nobody may go back to work until a vaccine has been invented. I get that. But they're wrong because now they've moved outside of medicine into the area of public health. And that's not. And so I would say, apropos of that, in terms of what might be a value for our listeners, is that uh, one must run for the hills when you hear experts being quoted or people say studies reveal, Mm. don't surrender your own intelligence. God gave you a mind to figure things out. I'm not saying that you and I know medicine, you know, and epidemiology. No, we don't know that, but we know what questions to ask. And then after that, we know how to make judgments that are best for us and for our families and maybe even for our communities. So, it's been a, an enormously a worrying time. I'm not nearly as worried about coronavirus as I am by what we've done to the economy. Well, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, thank you very much for your time. This has been a most enjoyable conversation. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, the best place is my website, as people know today. And uh, one way to get to my website is the URL you need a rabbi.com. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So that makes it easy to remember, right? You need a rabbi.com. The same website is reached by rabbi Daniel Same thing. And, and that's really the best place to look on the financial front. Not only are my books there, but I also have some audio programs, including one called Prosperity Power, meaning the uh, Prosperity Power is connecting for success. This idea that not good for man to be alone. So therefore, what are the incentives for getting connected with people? The incentives are huge. And how do we connect? How do we build a metric for our connection so you can actually measure it and improve it. Those are some of the things I cover in resources on my website. And as if you hadn't figured it out, dear listeners, uh, there is tremendous wisdom in Rabbi Lappin's work, and I highly recommend it. Rabbi Lappin, thank you so much again. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks. Well, that was super fun. I had an awesome time talking to Rabbi Lappin. And as I re-listened to it just now, it's refreshing to hear somebody that just tells you exactly where they're coming from, what their point of view is. Say what you want, agree or disagree. You know exactly where that guy stands. And I find that to be great. I also happen to agree with him completely on the fact that there is so much goodness to be gained by serving one another. And really that the best businesses are built on an ethos of service, that people to believe that business is evil or that you can lie and cheat and steal your way to scale, it's simply impossible. It's just, you can't do it. So I'm glad Rabbi Lappin is out there. I was sitting there thinking, What are the takeaways? And I just wrote down a few things. One, you really can't only make money when you serve other people. And I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but but a young person I was talking to not long ago was saying that if I make more money, I'm taking it away from somebody else and they'll have less. And I mean, my head almost exploded. And I was just like, you poor thing, you you poor child, that attitude, it's being a poor child will keep you poor for as long as you hang on to that myth in your life. And so I'm glad Rabbi Lappin is out there spreading this message. Secondly, the clearer you are about how your service provides value to others, the more money you'll be able to make, the more you'll be able to understand what it is that people can't not buy, to quote my friend Merrick first. When you know that, when you know what your customer needs from you because it is the only place they can get that value that makes their life better, you have a customer for life. So that's a really important one. And lastly, my last point, I hope you take this with, with, with the respect that it is meant, is that Jews are awesome. They're fantastic people. I love hanging out with them. I didn't know any Jewish people. Not real. I don't think I knew any Jewish people until I got to college. 
I don't know if there are any Jews in my high school. I went to Catholic school for 12 years. David Lewis, my first Jewish friend across the hall at college. And Dave, hope you're doing well if you're out there, wherever you are. And then I went to business school. And of course now, and I worked in the media business for 15 years and my Rolodex, yeah, I have a Rolodex. It's a uh, paper Ferris wheel that I keep on my desk. No, it's a digital database. It's just full of Goldbergs and Goldsteins and all those wonderful people. I don't know what it is. I don't know if the shared values between the big Catholic family that I grew up in and Jewish families, the emphasis on guilt and shame, sure, but tradition and family and food and togetherness is something that I've always really vibed with with a lot of Jewish people. They're also super fun tell good jokes, throw good parties. So anyway, my newest friend from the Jewish community is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Again, check out his website, youneedarabbi.com. Check out bookshop.org slash list slash crazy money, or click the link in the show notes. Send me an email at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com if you have ideas for guests or any comments to help me make this show the best damn podcast ever. Thanks for listening. Mike Carano, please make me sound smart.